listener production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. Join us every week as we break down one issue in global politics so that you can understand what's going on in the world right now, but also what's likely to happen in the future. Our host, Dr. Keith Souter, is one of Australia's leading commentators on global affairs and geopolitics. My name is Sasha Barbagat. I'm a journalist. Over the 20th century, we added about 30 years to the human life expectancy. Things like medical advancements and research have made it possible to live longer than ever, and things aren't really slowing down. But have our systems and procedures in caring for the elderly advanced with our growing ages? Well, they haven't, according to elder justice expert M.T. Connolly, who's written a book called The Measure of Our Age, which claims the systems to look after America's elderly in particular are broken. We're discussing today why growing old in the US is harder and more expensive than it's ever been. Keith, thank you for joining us. Thank you. This problem is only going to be exacerbated as the world's population ages, isn't it? It is. And I found this article intriguing because Marie-Therese Connolly, who just calls herself MT, Mm. MT Connolly, she has been involved with the whole aged care or elder care issue for many years. She originally was training to work in the health system, then she became a lawyer, became an expert on fraud, which is a good way of dealing with some of the aged care issues we've got to deal with. And what struck me, of course, is that the Americans are wrestling with exactly the issues that we've been doing in Australia recently with our own Royal Commission, Mm. which went on for such a long time, cost a lot of money and come up with all sorts of recommendations. And, of course... The Royal Commission has laid down certain recommendations, which is leading to some people just pulling out of aged care. They're just saying, we we haven't got the money to continue in that industry. So reading about this in the United States, we see that it's not unique to Australia. And we see the Americans are getting into a bit of a mess. So she's written this very interesting book about how we're going to take care of older Americans. She takes the view that we really haven't thought through the implications of the statistics you've just given us Mm. about the additional life expectancy. And so she's written the book looking at some of the challenges of that. So what are the current care options for the elderly in the United States? I'm guessing it's pretty similar to Australia, but talk us through them. So you've got three. One is the family, traditionally the major caregivers anyway. And so they remain major caregivers. Yeah. So, you know, you've got, you need to have children, so make sure you get some children. (laughs) (laughs) I'll do my best. (laughs) (laughs) If you want to be looked after in old age. I know. Yeah. So the family is the traditional version and puts in a lot of work, which is not reflected in national statistics. Yeah. If you provide a service to family members for free, it doesn't get included in statistics. We only measure the movement of money through the economy. So if you're not charging for your services, doesn't get counted by the bean counters. So number one, the family. The second one are caregivers in the home. Beginning in in Australia's case, in the state of Victoria, we have what's called the HIF movement, hospital in the home. Okay, yeah. So instead of getting people to go to a hospital, the nurses, community nurses, visit you in your home Mm. to change your bandages or whatever. And this is quite a bit of a mindset change for the health profession because they operate on an industrial scale and they only think of people coming to them to this factory, which they call a hospital. 
which can often be risky because of the prevalence of diseases in hospitals, then you've got to make the effort to get there. But instead, with HITH, the hospital in the home movement, the nurses then travel around. And in the United States, it's just like Australia, that we've now got this blossoming community care revolution. I think it's fantastic. Mm. Because it's enabling people to spend more time at home generally rather than having to go into institutional aged care. And from a government point of view, it actually works out probably a bit cheaper because you're not having to pay for bricks and mortar. Yeah, facilities. Because people are just being treated in their own, which is what they want. They want to be treated in their own home, not necessarily going to residential aged care Mm. or a hospital. Mm. So the second form then is community care, taking the care to people. And then the third one, of course, is residential aged care, which in Australia really began big time in the mid-1950s. Sir Robert Menzies, a number of church providers spoke to him and he said, all right, well, we'll give you dollar for dollar. And then on that that basis, in the state of Victoria, we started developing residential aged care. Churches at that time often had tennis courts that weren't being used. People were now too frail to play play tennis. And so you, you had the spare land. And the Commonwealth provided the money to put the bricks and mortar on that spare land. It was a yeah. great scheme. And then it just got bigger and bigger. Now, of course, it's a major part of the Australian government budget, which Menzies never thought about in the mid-1950s. No. But as, again, of course, that's a reflection of your opening statistic. People are living longer. Yeah. You know, if you go back to the old days of financial advice, we used to think in terms of seven times final annual salary. So we used to talk about seven FAS. Okay, as in to retire with. And to retire with. Right, okay. So you retired at 65 and you died at 72. (laughs) Seven good years. (laughs) (laughs) That's just seven FAS. Yeah. That's the formula which the accounting companies use to work out how much you needed for pensions, et cetera. And, of course, now people who retire, well, even at 60 or 65, they could be around for another 30-odd years. Easily. My father died at the age of 97. He was yep. bankrupting the British Treasury. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, all my great-grandparents have passed now, but they were all either late 80s. My great-grandmother was 99 yep. when she passed away. I've still got a couple of grandparents around. They're both in their 80s. So, and, you know, still going, like still driving and living yep. on their own and we are, we're, we're getting older and we're living longer. And so Connolly's argument is that we really haven't thought through mm. the implications of all of this. That's why I find the book very interesting because it is forcing us to think about these things. In terms of the care models that are available, those three you just listed, I'm guessing access to them isn't equal depending on how much money people have when they're elderly. So what are the outcomes for someone who's 85 and has no money compared to someone who's 85 and has some wealth behind them? Well, it's interesting. There is a correlation between education and wealth, Mm. and there's uh, uh, a correlation between education and health. So the more educated you are, in theory, the wealthier you will be, but also the longer you will live. An interesting correlation. Mm. And so for somebody who gets to the age of 85, that's an achievement if they're financially disadvantaged. So if they get that long, but yes, they are disadvantaged compared with somebody who's got more money mm. and can afford to pay for carers to come in and help them out. The care is very expensive if yeah. you're trying to get it on the private market, but it, it can be done providing you've got the money. 
Can you explain to us who runs care services? I mean, this, you know, this uh, MT Connolly is in the United States, so we'll obviously refer to that, but also in Australia. You mentioned churches. Are there any for-profit organisations that are running oh, yeah. these places? And, and, this is, and, and she touches on it as well when she talks about the investors moving in on aged care. We've seen that. They've not had that much of a happy life in Australia, mm. but most of the aged care is provided by charities, not-for-profit sector. That could be the churches, obviously, who are still major providers. It could also be non-for-profit local community groups that have come together. Mm. You've got some that are operating for-profit. Now, they're mainly in the retirement village. Now, this, gets where, this is where it gets very complicated. Mm-hmm. So you've got residential aged care for people who are assessed in the Australian context. They are assessed by an aged care assessment team. So you you might have an ageing relative. They will then check and they will say, yes, this person should go to a residential aged care facility and will receive a certain level of care Mm -hmm. for that. But completely separately, at state government level, you have the retirement village industry. So the retirement village industry is where you buy into a retirement village, a house, and basically become a tenant on somebody else's land, and there are very limited access by the owner to what you do in your house, mm-hmm. providing you're not annoying the neighbours or presenting a threat to them or whatever. You can do whatever you like, and that's usually at the age of 55. So you go in, They have, in fact, they often recommend you go into a retirement village early and then grow old with your neighbours. Yeah, right. And have much more of a sense of community. Now, that is completely separate from what is regarded as the aged care that people would normally think about, which are high and low care facilities. So these are people, and you see them on the outskirts of Australian cities in particular, where you buy what's called green fields, quite often farmland, and you then put up an entire village. One here in New South Wales is so big, the entire village has its own postcode. It is so big, just the other side of Parramatta. They are separate from what we're looking at here. So with residential aged care, these are for older people, not necessarily wealthy. The theory in Australia with a lot of our aged care thinking is that you sell a home and therefore you can buy into one of these arrangements. But a lot of people don't own their own homes and women in particular at a disadvantage. There are three indications of poverty in old age. One is the state of your health. A second is whether or not you're married. Mm-hmm. And the third one, of course, is whether or not you're a female. Mm. Women live longer and, and yet they don't get the opportunity to accumulate wealth in the same way that their men, men folk can do. Mm, so it's a disadvantage, I guess, yeah. then for women as well. So I, my suggestion is that when, whenever, if you can, buy a house. Yeah. Now, I'm not licensed to give financial <laughs> advice, but it seems to me that that is the best thing that somebody can do. And then... As the decades roll on, it's increasing in value and you've got this financial cushion for when you have to go into aged care or whatever. Thanks for joining us on today's episode of Global Truths. As we look at the aged care industry in the United States, its flaws and what needs to be done to fix it. What sort of outcomes are we seeing for the elderly in the US based on how the system currently is operating? Well, Marie-Therese Connolly is very worried about the state of the system. 
She thinks it's vulnerable to fraud and she's concerned about the way that people get exploited. And I think that because it's still an immature industry, you've got two, two ways of thinking about industries. An immature industry is when you have a large number of providers, say a large number of airlines. So when Henry Ford started making cars, there were 500 car producers in the United States. But then the motor car industry became mature and you end up with just a handful mm -hmm. of car producers. The same thing has got to happen in aged care. So instead of having a wide diversity of providers, they will need to be whittled down through amalgamations, et cetera, and done in such a way that you then end up with just a handful of providers. It makes it easier to regulate. And her concern is obviously this issue of fraud because she's partly been a, a fraud lawyer, uh, in the former fraud lawyer in a past life, and also the way in which people are just unprepared for this. You know, everybody wants to live a long time, but nobody wants to get old. No. So <laughs> nobody thinks about getting old. That's right. Although everybody wants to be around for an awfully long time. That's so true. How is MT Connolly finding people are getting defrauded of their money or their assets? Like, how is that working for the elderly trying to get assistance? There's a whole new area of crime. Well, it's certainly new to us in terms of public discussion, but I'm sure it's been around for centuries, called elder abuse. And so the most common form of elder abuse is actually stealing money from your elderly relatives. Mm. And if you work in the aged care sector, you'll see examples of that all the time as people try to draw money out of an aging parent's bank account, etc. Now, the Australian banks are saying they're doing their best to try to prevent that type of elder abuse, but it is a real problem. And that is the major form. So you know, when people talk about elder abuse, they're not just talking about physical abuse, it's actually stealing the money. Mm. And older people are very vulnerable. They don't want to complain for fear that they will then be evicted. They don't want to complain if it's, say, a, a grandchild stealing money to pay for a drug habit. Mm. They don't want the grandchild to go to jail. So again, they keep quiet and just lose money as a result of it. It's a tragic situation. Let's look at some of the positives. Now, one method or one tool, I guess, that's being talked up is AI, which I found really interesting in this article. Do you want to tell us about how AI can help with yeah. these situations? Well, we've commented a lot over the years regarding Japan ageing and running out of young workers. So Japan also has, therefore, the highest rate of robots in the world mm -hmm. per capita. And so they use robots in the provision of healthcare, you know, helping to pick up aged care residents, for example, from their bed, move them around. One of my favourite examples is what's called PARO, P-A-R-O, which is a baby seal. It's a, it's a Canadian harp seal. Mm -hmm. um, I remember running an environmental campaign to protect Canadian harp seals from these terrible Canadians who clubbed them. Mm. Oh, awful. Mm. And we won that good campaign. So these are really lovely little cuddly. The, the animals are nice and cuddly, <laughs> <laughs> as well as worth a great deal of money. And so a Japanese AI firm has created a baby seal. I checked this morning. It costs about $6,000. You might be able to buy cheaper versions, but it's about $6,000. Mm -hmm. So we're not talking about a cheap, fluffy toy here. Yeah. This is sophisticated technology, mm. which weighs about the same as a baby. Okay. So it's about six pounds. Because of all the sensors that are built into it, it turns its head towards you when you talk. 
Wow. Doesn't talk back, of course, but no. it, it knows that you're speaking in that particular direction. It's gorgeous. Yeah. So you go onto YouTube and check it out. It's fantastic. It's been around now for about a dozen years, particularly useful with dementia patients. Dementia patients, part of the problem in Australia, we call it sundowning. At the end of the day, they get agitated. They want to start moving around. They're a bit difficult to deal with. Now, of course, in Australia, as mentioned in the Royal Commission, we heavily sedate people. And uh, some of us have been campaigning that this is a form of torture if you keep them restrained. And giving people drugs is chemical restraint. Yeah. You don't put them in chains, you just make them blotter. Yeah. Now, one of the ways that you can avoid that problem is giving them these seals to play with. How, how does that have an impact on that time of day for dementia patients? Well, at any time of the day, really. I'm yeah. just talking about sundowners. But mm. it's, it's a good way of... I don't know, it just seems to have a magical effect. They're nice and cuddly. Wow. Another thing you can do is to bring dogs mm. into the wards. In fact, that's one of the criteria the Commonwealth Government looks for when they visit your facility. Really? <laughs> the problem is, of course, dogs have to go home at night. They're not allowed to roam around, whereas para can operate 24 hours a day, although it does need to be recharged from time to time. Mm. So it's obviously quite a high-energy consumer but then it's a very sophisticated piece of equipment. The Japanese have pulled off a really fantastic item here. So it's nice and cuddly mm. and responds to you and your touch. And that's it. <laughs> that's all. Like, it's great. But like, so it doesn't, it's not doing anything else except for kind of acting as like a companion, I companion, guess. Companion, absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So interesting. Um, and I understand AI can be used a lot for diagnostics as well. They're looking at that with the Hith hospital in the home, yep. with having IA. AI monitor, you know, your blood pressure levels or your sugar levels if you're a diabetic and then alerting nurses and things. So I think that's one of the ways that we could obviously really improve health outcomes for the elderly everywhere by using those. So the and Japanese have invented an intelligent aged care centre. Mm. So as you walk around the floor, they can tell that you're mobile and if you're on the floor, say you've fallen over, they can tell there's somebody lying on the floor. Wow. So they come in and check. They also now have an intelligent toilet. I won't go into the details. <laughs> <laughs> but diagnosis a state of your health. So, yes, you're right. AI could be a winner here. The problem is that it comes under the heading of the Internet of Things. So we only have, say, 8 billion, 7 billion people on Earth, but we're going to end up connecting something like 30 billion items yep. to the Internet. So in terms of the, the thing you've been mentioning about monitoring of health, you do that, say, through a watch or whatever at a distance. You don't need to be at the hospital having yeah. tests done. They can monitor you 24 hours a day. An AI can just simply identify times when it might be rather difficult for you and then give warnings to the human staff. So it is a whole new era that's opening up for how we can mobilise artificial intelligence to improve people's health and to safeguard their well-being and aged care. And before I let you go, is that the answer then? It's, it's going to be, I mean... How else can we address this crisis or this issue, really? I think that that's got to be one of the major answers. I have real reservations, you know, about information technology, mm -hmm. but it may well be that this is going to help us solve the problem because we're getting a reduced number of people willing to work with aged care. If you talk to the staff, they prefer to work with children because the children are nice and cuddly and ultimately will leave and, and be quite safe. Whereas when you're dealing with older people, you know what's waiting for them at the end of the corridor. So it's a, a more depressing atmosphere, I'm afraid. So, yes, we, we might be able to have robots introduced to help save us 
in our old age. Well, maybe I'll find out one day, Keith. <laughs> Thanks so much. <laughs> Thank you. Global Truths is presented by Dr. Keith Suda and me, Sasha Barber-Gatt. Audio production by Niall Fernandez. Theme and original music by Matt Nikolich.